It uh, has been, to me, an immense joy to serve as one of your pastors for the last nine years. One of the greatest joys of my life. And when I think about God's developmental process in my life, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude at the kindness of God. You know, none of us gets to script our own lives. We just look back and we discern God's hand. And when I think back over how God has written my story, I'm just full of gratitude. I, I just, for things to come together in this way, to be serving in this church, to step into this role, not as somebody coming in from the outside who's new to a congregation and has to learn faces and names, but having in many senses, grown up in this church. My wife and I together, having all of our kids in this church and sharing our lives with you all for so long, and then to serve on this eldership. I'm so grateful to God for these men. And it's just an incredible blessing that as we make this transition, I've told a few people, you know, the amazing thing is at our next elders meeting, it's going to be the same five men in that room. (laughs) And it's just a joy. It's a joy. And it's a weighty joy to me to take on the responsibility of senior pastor, this church that I love so dearly. You are the people who matter the most to me and to my family. I feel about you what Paul felt for the Thessalonians when he wrote, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? I mean, those are big words. What What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are. Now, I want you to know that I step into this role in faith and with great humility. I've been praying the prayer of Solomon when God asked him, ask what I shall give you, 1 Kings 3. And Solomon answered, and now, O Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people. Solomon's words capture for me two things that I feel deeply. First is humble reverence and fear of God. I'm but a child. And I feel that. I I don't know what I'm doing. I, I desperately need God's help as Lauren prayed. Thank you, Lauren, for praying that way for me. Second, I feel immense regard for the people of God. As Solomon said here, these are your people. You chose them. They are a great people. Who can lead this, your great people? Give me an understanding mind, therefore. I need God's grace, and to that end, I treasure your prayers and your partnership in the gospel. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14, one verse, verse 26. It's been our practice to spend the first month of each year giving our attention to what we call habits of grace. And we get that helpful phrase from David Mathis in his book entitled Habits of Grace. And Mathis, I think, helpfully observes for us that a lot of talk about 
what we commonly call spiritual disciplines, sometimes has a tendency to overemphasize our own initiative, our effort, our skill, while perhaps underemphasizing God's grace, God's power, God's provision. So there's nothing wrong with the word spiritual discipline. You don't have to jump on somebody who uses that phrase. It's fine. It's helpful. But sometimes our our focus gets off a little bit. Mathis writes, my hope in reshifting the focus from the spiritual disciplines to the means of grace and then the various personal habits of grace we develop in light of them is to keep the gospel and the energy of God at the center. This is about God's grace. What are means of grace? Means of grace are those God-given channels through which God has promised in his word, this is where I pour out my grace. And his grace is not just, as Greg has taught us over the years so, so faithfully, so helpfully, not just God cutting us slack or taking it easy. God's grace is his dynamic and active power at work toward us and in us changing us and transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And these are habits of grace because they begin by grace and they are sustained by grace and practiced by grace and they are God's appointed means by which he intends to lavish more and more of his grace on you. And they're habits because they are regular and repeated practices by which we place ourselves again and again and again in those pathways or those channels where God promises to pour out that grace. Habits, as you probably know, are powerful practices, and they shape the kind of person that you become. Justin Early, in his book, Habits of the Household, writes, habits are fascinating little things. They are the things we do over and over, semi-consciously, to unconsciously, by definition, they are, of course, little. But the aggregate impact of habits is as big as each habit is small. Jay Adams illustrates the power and necessity of habits by asking this question. When does a thief become no longer a thief? And he points out the answer can't be simply when he is not stealing. Because he could be on his lunch break, he could be taking a two-week vacation, maybe he gave up stealing for Lent, and he's going to take it up again. When is a thief no longer a thief? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Adams points out, if you want real change to happen in your life, Old habits have to die. You have to put off old practices and you put on new habits and new practices. So when the thief no longer is stealing, but he is now working hard, earning an honest living, and giving generously with his hands, that's when he's no longer a thief. God's grace has worked something mighty in him. You, You see, your habits are your routines, and your routines become who you are. We would like to think our hearts and our hands just follow our heads. You just think a thought, and then everything follows after that. But if that was the case, just learning new information would always be enough to affect big change in your life, right? You just look at the package of Oreos, and you realize how, how much sugar is in one of those cookies, and it would have an effect on you. But it, it doesn't necessarily. 
right? The, the reality is our hearts follow our habits, and that means we must not only learn the truth, we have to practice it. And as we practice that, we come to love it. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice them. Don't just think about them. Don't just agree with them. Practice them, and the God of peace will be with you. This year, we're going to spend four Sundays looking at habits of grace, particularly habits that we practice corporately. Not private habits of grace, although those are wonderful personal habits of grace, like reading the Bible on your own and meditating on God's Word and private prayer and worship. Those are significant parts of the Christian life, but the life of faith is lived not only in personal private devotion, but in community, corporately. And the Lord Jesus himself has given us corporate practices that form us into his own image as his body on earth. The four corporate habits of grace we're going to consider are corporate worship today, and then we'll look at baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. We're going to begin with corporate worship this morning. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we were introduced to a a new category for evaluating businesses and services and activities. Remember those phrases? Essential and non-essential. You probably are well aware which one your line of work fell into, how that affected you. Things like grocery stores and gas stations and banks and utility service, laundromats, those were essential. But things like you know, gyms and movie theaters and nail salons, that could all wait. In many states, churches were categorized as non-essential activities. Sadly, I think revealingly, many Christians were quick to accept that designation of corporate worship gatherings as a non-essential activity. My my point this morning is not to get into the the prudence of handling pandemics and infectious disease, but, but rather to consider how essential is this gathering right here. As one blog post from May of 2020 observed, church is not essential, we assume, because Christianity is just as easily practiced solo at home, isn't it? Give me a Bible, some inspiring worship music, maybe a few spiritual podcasts, and I'm good. Do we really need church to be spiritually healthy? How do you view the public assembly of the church every Lord's Day? Is it a non-essential extra? Is it a nice add-on to your life, an optional enhancement, or is corporate worship essential to your soul, to the vitality of the church of Jesus Christ, to the evangelization of the world, and to the worship and praise of God? I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able as I read 1 Corinthians 14, 26, because this is God's very word. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Father, we thank you for your word and what a habit, what a practice it is for us week after week after week to stand in reverence to your word, to receive 
your own self-revelation, your verbal communication of yourself, which you accompany with your spirit who works in us. And we are praying that you would sanctify us this morning by your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When it comes to worship, it, it may be one of the broadest topics there is. It's accurate to say all of life is worship. And so Paul can say whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, all of life is worship. That, that's true. It, it's also helpful to think about personal devotion and to think about private worship. It's valuable to give attention to an area of worship like family worship and your own practices in your home. What exactly is corporate worship? That word corporate may have connotations of business to you. A corporation is a large company, but the word corporate comes from the Latin word corpus. It just means body. So corporate worship is when the body of Christ gathers to worship Christ. The body of Christ gathers together to worship Christ. It could also be called public worship or gathered worship or assembled worship or congregational worship. I like the word corporate worship because we are, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. One body made up of many members. And my aim this morning is to secure your joyful participation in the corporate worship gathering. Your joyful participation in the corporate worship gathering of the local church. And I hope to do that by deepening your awe and wonder and amazement at what happens here every Sunday morning. When your view of the assembled church is biblically informed, informed by God's word, you're trusting his word, so it's not just what you see with your eyes. I mean, we're in a middle school gymnasium with blue tarps on the floor and not so comfortable folding chairs. So I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about what scripture says about what's happening right here. When your view of the assembled church is biblically informed, it changes the way you attend church, the way you participate in the church. And the main point of 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is that your regular participation in the corporate gathering of the local church is the way God builds his church on earth. Your participation in this gathering is the way that God builds his church on earth. We're going to look at this verse in three parts. First, the habit of corporate worship, the substance of corporate worship, and finally, the effect of corporate worship. First, the habit of corporate worship. Verse 26 begins, what then, brothers, when you come together? And that question, what then, brothers, is the introduction of a conclusion, a main point. It comes at the end of a lengthy unit that began way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, kind of middle of chapter 11, all the way through chapter 14, is the longest treatment of corporate worship in Scripture. In this section, Paul deals with various aspects of what the church does when the church gathers together as the church. Seven times in this passage, Paul uses the verb that's found here in verse 26, to come together. When you come together. Th that verb means to come together with others as a group, to assemble, to gather. And more specifically, Paul talks about when you come together as a church in chapter 11, verse 18. And he says, the whole 
church comes together in 1423. When you come together. For Paul and other authors of the New Testament, it is simply assumed the church gathers. The church comes together. The church assembles. It's not if you feel like coming together, when you happen to, it's when you come together regularly, habitually, over and over and over again. Individual Christians make it a habit to gather regularly with other Christians in order to worship God together. And we have at Emmaus Road Church from the beginning made the point, the church is not a building or an event, it's a body of believers who express their shared life in Christ by sharing life with one another in community. And, and you know, under the old covenant, God was pleased to manifest his special presence in the tabernacle. We just got done with the book of Exodus and later in the temple in Jerusalem. But when Jesus was crucified, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the most holy was ripped open. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he himself poured out his spirit on his people. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, and in the Greek that's you plural, not just you individually, you yourself personally, you corporately, you collectively are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. With the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, the presence of God is no longer limited to brick and mortar building, but inhabits the gathered people of God. We have also emphasized over the years what you could call thick community. The kind of community where we don't just spend an hour together once a week, but multiple areas of our lives overlap so that we recreate together and we share meals together and we help each other put down flooring and we just share all of life and when all of these areas of life overlap that builds thick community and while it's necessary to and helpful to emphasize those things it's also necessary to maintain the biblical emphasis on the corporate worship gathering of God's people The church is the people, not the building, but more accurately, the church is the people gathered together, not just the people dispersed. You can have lots of drops of water all over the place, but a a lake gets a name when all those drops of water are gathered into one place, and it's significant enough that somebody says, we got to give this thing a name. This is a body of water, as Matt Merker puts it. The church is more than a gathering, but it is not less than a gathering. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ makes his body, think about this, he makes his own body visible to the world when his people gather corporately. So the public or corporate gathering of God's people, this is a unique event. All the things that we do, this event is unique. God is present everywhere in one sense. We speak of his omnipresence. He's present with each believer through his spirit in a profound sense, but God manifests his presence in an unparalleled way when the church gathers for worship. Immediately before verse 26 here, in verses 24 and 25, Paul describes an occasion he envisions where an unbeliever 
enters a gathering of a local church, he writes, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. Not just in you individually, that was a nice person, I think God was in that person. God is among you corporately. Have you ever had the experience that you wake up on a Sunday morning and you think something like, oh, is it really worth going through all the trouble to get there? When you think about all the things that we do here, like that blog post from COVID days wrote, can't you do all these things on your own? I mean, you could listen to the same songs, privacy of your own home, so you can just, you know, sing and not care what anybody thinks about your voice. You could listen to sermons at the, your own convenience while you drive in your car. You can read your Bible on your own. Make no mistake, the assembly of the church for corporate worship is a unique event. You know this, right? Singing on your own is not the same as singing in a gathered assembly, hearing the voices of others, seeing their faces, their, their lifted hands. Reading the Bible on your own is good, but something unique happens when the whole church stands reverently and reads responsively and receives together by faith the word. Listening to a sermon on your own is fine, but the preaching moment is unique. One 17th century pastor said it like this, the Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in one so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private is but a stream in public, becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. Do you prioritize, do you treasure, do you, do you value corporate worship? Is it a given for you in your life like it is in Scripture? Or is it an, an add-on, an extra, maybe if nothing more important comes up? When you come together, Paul says, that, that assumes coming together with other believers is a regular, habitual part of life. And in our culture, a few generations ago, that was a lot easier because culturally, Sunday was a day set aside for worship. It's harder these days. Sunday is half of your precious weekend. It's one more day to squeeze in youth sports, tournaments, and mini vacations, and house projects. So it has to be a, an intentional habit that you cultivate. It's my prayer that we as the people of Emmaus Road Church would so prize the presence of God uniquely manifested in our public gathering that we would prioritize this weekly assembly together. Unless you hear this as a burdensome obligation to attend church more, let me assure you, the gathering of the church is first and foremost an act of God's grace. Before you attend church, you have to understand God assembles the church. That's what happens. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul began his teaching on spiritual gifts by establishing your faith in Christ and your place in community is the work of the Spirit. He writes, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
And think about your life before Christ, outside of Christ. What would you be doing right now? He writes, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit in you to cause you to trust in Jesus so that you would gather together with other people trusting in Jesus and visibly manifest the body of Jesus on earth. How did you become a worshiper of Jesus instead of a worshiper of idols? How did you come to profess faith in Christ as Lord, the Spirit of God made you a worshiper and gathered you together with one another. Second, the substance of corporate worship. The habit of corporate worship is not Paul's main point here in verse 26. Gathering regularly is the given. That's the assumption. His point is what happens when you come together. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, corporate worship is participatory. This makes all the difference. All of God's people participate in and contribute to the corporate worship gathering on the Lord's day. Back in chapter 12, Paul wrote, to each is given, to each one, to each individual member of the body of Christ is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11 of chapter 12, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So not only does the Spirit assemble the church and make worshipers, the Spirit then gives and apportions and empowers gifts in every believer so that when you gather together, the Spirit is ministering to others through you. That's God's purpose for this gathering. When the church gathers, each and every disciple of Jesus has something to contribute. What Paul lists here as a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. I think Matt Merker helpfully sums it up in a pithy way when he says, the pew is the platform on Sunday morning. The pew is the platform. Even though a handful of people are up front leading the congregation from the front, Every believer in the congregation plays a vital role in our public gatherings. Gathering for corporate worship is not like going to a movie theater where the lights are low and you just you don't want to notice other people and you really don't want them to notice that you're there. When you gather here to worship, you have a part to play. Did you know that? Do you think that way? Do you pray that way when you get up and you prepare to come? I have a role to play. I'm contributing something here. In his book, Engaging with God, David Peterson writes, Paul expected that members of the congregation would come with some contribution prepared for the occasion or that individuals might be prompted by the Spirit to offer prayer or praise or some other ministry on the spot. Paul adds, this should not be done in a chaotic or self-promoting way, but with order and decency. He says in chapter 14 here, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, verse 33. And later, all things should be done decently and in order, verse 40. We make room for that in our gatherings on Sunday morning by setting up a microphone down here. We call it a prophecy mic or ministry mic because we believe that God means to minister to the church through the church. So we want to make room in case God has prompted you by his spirit with a word of encouragement or a word of prophecy or a passage of scripture or a prayer. So there's always an elder positioned over here. And if 
God has laid something on your heart, you are welcome to come down and share that with the elder here by this mic. And it's the responsibility of that elder to make sure whatever's shared here aligns with Scripture and that the timing and delivery would edify and strengthen the body. This mic is one way we practically make room for 1 Corinthians 14, 26 and expect that when we come together, each one has something to contribute. But it's not the only way to participate on Sunday mornings. You contribute to this gathering when you engage in singing with your heart and with your hands and with your voice. Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 says, be filled with the Spirit. This is an interesting phrase when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Two things go together. Who are you singing to? To the Lord, addressing one another. You, you address each other. So in, in some circles, uh, we tend to think about worship as just a, a private, just I'm trying to get a connection with God thing here and not think about anybody else. Scripture tells us, think about the other people. It's okay while you're singing to look around the room and even make eye contact with other people because you are addressing one another when you sing. When I think about those times when I'm most deeply affected by the truth of the songs that we're singing, it's not the musicians were just so on, right? As talented as they are, as grateful as we are to God for somebody like Caleb Dernberger who so faithfully leads our music ministry, Caleb would tell you the most important instrument on Sunday morning is the congregation. Your voice, that's the instrument he cares about the most. I'm affected most deeply in corporate worship when I look around and I see you worshiping. Those moments when it just feels like people are trying to blow the roof off with their voices. That affects my soul. You know what that experience is like. You look over and you see that person is trusting God right now. They're fighting by faith. It might be easiest to see how singing is participatory, but really every aspect of our gathering is an opportunity for you to engage and contribute. During the call to worship, God's word is read and you are addressed and invited to respond. During the pastoral prayer, you're not just listening, you're praying too, agreeing in prayer. During the sermon, you, you have an opportunity to take notes and listen and nod along. And even if you feel comfortable, vocalize agreement. You, you are participating at this moment because God is addressing you. So when you come to corporate worship, you come not as a spectator seeking to be entertained, not as a doctrinal and ecclesiastical connoisseur coming to evaluate and critique not as a consumer coming for some personal satisfaction. You come to this gathering as a spirit-filled contributor and a vital participant. Finally, consider the effect of corporate worship. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. When the body of Christ gathers corporately and each member is actively engaged, the result is the body of Christ is built up, strengthened. This is Paul's central point in all of 1 Corinthians 14 when he's dealing with spiritual gifts, 
misunderstandings about spiritual gifts, his repeated point is this. Everything should be done to build up the church. Verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, so that the church may be built up. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel. What should you strive to be really, really, really good at? Building up the church. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. And I think we tend to take that initially, edifying, building up. You know, we say something is edifying when we were personally encouraged. But Paul takes his cue. He's echoing Old Testament language when he's talking about building up. Rich Old Testament language like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah who promised God's work of salvation in terms of repairing ruins. Jeremiah 24, 6, I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. That's the language Paul's using. Isaiah 61, 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Building up echoes the language of King Solomon who built a house for the name of the Lord and he said in 2 Chronicles 6, 2, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And Jesus uses this language when he tells Peter, I will build my church. Talking about a lot more than just personal encouragement. He's talking about building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when Paul is speaking of building up the church, he's, he's talking about a massive construction project, building a temple, constructing the dwelling place of God out of living stones, and you are those living stones. You're the living stones being built together, and get this, the way you are built together, the way Jesus builds his church is by filling you with his spirit so that you minister to one another and Christ builds his church. Commenting on 1 Corinthians 14, David Peterson writes, Paul would urge us to view the well-being and strengthening of the whole church as the primary aim of the gathering. The primary aim of the gathering. There ought to be real engagement with other believers in the context of mutual ministry, shared prayer and praise not simply a friendly chat over a cup of coffee after church. That's well and good. But we are here to minister to one another. Not just to have my own personal private feelings about God enhanced a little bit by you know, lights and smoke and music and an encouraging message. You can tell if you've been influenced by that way of thinking if you tend to evaluate Sunday mornings in terms of how much did I get out of it? Did I like the songs this week? Did I like the sermon this week? Do I feel closer to God this week? 1 Corinthians 14, 26 strikes down any individualistic, consumeristic ideas about worship. Rather than thinking, did I get anything out of that? I encourage you, come to this gathering asking God, what would you have me contribute? How can I engage 
And if you evaluate anything as you leave, evaluate yourself first. Was my attitude joyful? Did I hear the word with faith this morning? Did, did I express my delight in God so as to build up and strengthen his church that he bought with the blood of Christ? Edifying the church and worshiping God, those are not two different aims. They're one and the same thing. God is glorified when he builds his church through his people filled with his spirit. So as we begin 2024, would you resolve by God's grace to gather again and again and again with this attitude in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit. Let's be eager for manifestations of the spirit this year earnestly desiring that. And if you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit of God in our midst, then strive to excel in building up the church. Ask God to give you more desire for his presence and then express that eagerness by making every effort to build up his body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you do among us week after week by your Spirit how you manifest your presence. You speak through your word. You change us. You shape us. You change our desires. This habit, what a keystone habit this is and how many other parts of our lives are changed because you meet with us so faithfully week after week. God, would you pour out your spirit on these, your people, are trusting in you and would you empower each of us to minister to the body so that Christ would be glorified, so that the lost would be saved, so that our joy would be full. In Jesus' name, amen.